Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Scootybarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Scootybarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. Well, open your Bibles to Romans. In the New Testament to Romans chapter 1. This is one of those passages of Scripture that's difficult in that it creates in a pastor and a preacher a, a, a dilemma. And the dilemma is you really want to spend multiple weeks on this passage because there's a lot to it. But the problem with doing that is if, if you only preach a little bit of it, then people leave without the full picture. And so it's... It's like it'd be like going to a movie, walking into the movie late, so it's already started, but then leaving to go get popcorn, then coming back, and then leaving to go to the bathroom, and there's a long line, so you come back and you're like, you're, you're asking the person next to you, so what, what's going on, right? So if you miss any of it because you left, so that's what this passage is like. So I think that today we're going to go all the way through it, but I'm going to ask you to go back and, and study this more because this passage is a reason. It, it's the, it, it brings clarity to what's going on today in our culture. So last week I talked about the fact that we live in a chaotic culture, a culture that's gone mad. I mean, it's crazy the way that we have ignored the blatantly obvious, the things in front of us that should be as simple as night and day, and yet we're looking at them going, how do you even... How do you even have a conversation when, when there's no common ground at all. There, there's no, the, the, the ruler is constantly moving, right? Could you imagine hiring a builder and that builder brings three uh, people with him to help build the house, but each one of those uh, builders has a different ruler, a different tape measure? So one calls out, yeah, cut me a board that's 29 and 7 eighths. And so the guy pulls out his ruler and he cuts his board to his measurement of 29 and 7 eighths. And then he sends it up the chain. And the guy goes, no, I said 29 and 7 eighths. And the guy says, I did. Now, the third guy comes and says, here, let me cut you a new one. And so he cuts one and it's totally different as well. You could never build a house that way, right? That's what's going on in our world today. It's confusing and it's chaotic. So here's the question. Why is it like that? Is there a reason? Is there an explanation? Romans chapter 1, I think, gives us the reasoning or the explanation. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen through the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. 
They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way were left Uh, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Is that not simply a mirror on our own culture? Now, I want to say this right off the bat. It is impossible in this current cultural climate to preach this text or even to say any of these words without being labeled. And so we would like to think that we could sit down at a table and say, let's just look at the evidence. Let's just examine what's out there. And we could have a discourse with people and we could ask questions and go back and forth. But the truth is we have moved to such a point in our culture that now to even speak these words, even though these are not my words, I didn't create this, I didn't write this, I'm not saying this, this is what God has said in Romans chapter 1, even to read these words, the label is that you are a hater, you are phobic, you're causing fear and panic and the the labels just start moving, but there's a reason for that. Because when you get so entrenched in your own sin, you, ref- you suppress the truth and you begin to be delusioned and darkened in your thinking to where you can't even see what's right, even though it's right in front of you. And so, from me, I want you to hear this. There is not one ounce of hatred for any group of people in my body. This is not something that I wish bad for anyone. I'm a reporter in this. I'm simply telling you what God has already said. And what the scripture said in verse 18 is this. For God's wrath is revealed against, from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here we have this understanding that there is a God who is a God that is full of wrath. Now, there's this belief, and it's been discussed for, for, year, for decades, uh, and there, there's been, been different theologians that have brought it forward, and then it kind of surfaces back to the back, and then it keeps coming up. But there's this belief that there's two gods, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is harsh and mean and wrathful and vengeful. And so, so he's not very nice, but the God of the New Testament is full of love and grace and mercy. And so people would say, I love the God of the New Testament. I don't love the God of the Old Testament. Here's the problem with that. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't serve a schizophrenic God. We don't serve a God who was wrathful and now is not. We serve a God who is completely 
just and perfect and holy in everything he does. He is a God of wrath, and yet he is a God of grace, and he is a God of mercy, and he is a God of justice, and he is a God of love. He's not a God who is schizophrenic. He's, he's complete and perfect in all of his judgments and in all of his ways. The problem doesn't lie with God. The problem lies with our perception of God or our understanding of God, which ultimately is because we don't want to believe a God could do certain things. Now, it's interesting, though. Even within the church, we have the same thought. We lean towards a God of wrath or a God of love. All of us do. We, we naturally will lean one way or the other based on, and, and it generally changes from, from, from week to week or month to month or year to year based on who we're listening to or who we're studying. And so we get pigeonholed where I do the justice of God, the holiness of God, the, the righteousness of God. Yeah, I know he loves us, but, 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 but. Or we can get over here, the love of God, the mercy of God, the great. Yeah, I know he's just, but, 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 right? Right? I and mean, that's what we do, right? We've got to understand that God is bigger than that. God is everything that he ever says he is in his word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And the truth is, he is a God of wrath. That's part of his nature. But now, we need to understand what wrath is. Because when we think of wrath, we think of it as, as an a angry, um, um, vengeful kind of mentality. But you and I could never have this kind of wrath because we're sinful. Because we're not perfect, because we're not holy. The wrath of God is unleashed on ungodliness and wickedness. It is a righteous indignation. It is a righteous anger. It comes from a place of holiness and perfection. Therefore, it's only a wrath that God can truly have. And some might say, wait a minute, but God's wrath, he, he, he can't really overlook his love. But, but again, they're not juxtaposed against each other. They're together. His wrath is the reason that he had to demonstrate his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's wrath is for all people. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were once by nature objects of God's wrath. When I say we, I'm saying those who are the saints, those who were born again and trust, they've trusted in Christ. We were by nature objects of God's wrath, but God's wrath was satisfied through Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. So it was simply a, a, a transaction, if you will, that was paid in full. So your deserving of God's wrath was satisfied by God himself through his son. Does that make sense? And so when we look at this, it says, for God's wrath is revealed, we need to understand that we're not talking about a schizophrenic God, we're talking about a pure, true, holy God. Interestingly enough, let me bring you to this passage. Turn into to your Bibles to John chapter three. Because I wanna show you, just, just to belabor the point a little bit longer, John chapter 3, you don't even need to turn there because you can quote John 3.16 with me, right? It, it, it's, it's the love, it, it's the verse we all like to point to about God's love, and, and we should. It's, it's perfect, right? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Come on. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Ah. Then the next verse. For God did not send in his son and to condemn the world. Right? But here's the thing. Have you ever read the last verse of John chapter 3? 
Let's read that together. John chapter 3, verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, what? The wrath of God remains on him. So there's a consistency here, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. By the way, the Old Testament God of wrath, if that's all that you see in the Old Testament, you are missing the whole picture of the Old Testament. The whole purpose of the Old Testament is for God's grace and God's mercy to begin re- to be revealed on His people and on His creation. And all the Old Testament stories point to one single time in history. What is it? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. And in the, Old, and in the New Testament, Jesus is the center, and He's pointing to Himself as well through all of the, that He does. And so, in Romans chapter 1, let's go back there, it says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven. So there's a revelation of God's wrath. So we're, we're coming to know of his wrath. It's not like everything's perfect and then one day, boom, it's all there like hellfire and brimstone. It's this idea of there's a progressive revelation of God's wrath. So the, the more disobedient and the more sinful and the more unrighteous, the more his wrath is, is revealed and, and I guess we could use the word released. And so it gets more and more intense, right, and more, more noticeable. It says it's revealed against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. So the people are living, are living in unrighteousness and godlessness. And by their own unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So what's going on in our culture is the inability to define truth, right? And it's not because truth doesn't exist. It's because through our own desire for self-gratification in sin. And and however that means, we are suppressing the truth. We are burying the truth. We are ignoring the truth. And it it, kind of take this picture with you. This is not a biblical picture. This is just me trying to explain kind of how it would be. So you put truth on a boat, and truth is proclaiming truth, truth, truth. And then you push it off from the shore, and the farther away from you it gets, the quieter that voice gets, right? It's still complete truth. It's just that I've suppressed the truth. I've pushed it away because I don't want to hear it. And before long, it's so far out of reach that, hey, truth doesn't exist anymore. That's what we've done in our own culture. And it is a, people would call it a slippery slope, but the truth is, it is. Let me prove it to you. In the 50s, in the 50s, Did you have teachers dress up in rainbows, hold flags, and drag queens greet the students at the front door of the elementary school and march them through the school celebrating sexual independence and diversity? Did you you have that anywhere in this country in the 50s? No. Nowhere close. In fact, in the 50s, if you watch the TV shows, Leave it to Beaver... If you saw a picture of, 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 uh, of Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver in their bedroom, what did you see? Two beds. Two beds. Now, in my mind, I'm just thinking, that doesn't sound like a good time to live, right? But the point, y'all should have laughed at that. I mean, come on. But the point is, you wouldn't even, even imagine, it, you wouldn't put that on there. So I remember my dad told me the story. There, there was one of those um, 
There was one of those shows where, where the kids, I think it was Kids Say the Darndest Things, you know, the old Art Link, Art Link letter. My dad said there was one particular um, show where a kid was giggling, and so Art said, hey, why are you giggling? And the boy's response was, Roger farted. Did y'all, anybody know that episode? Anybody see that? Okay, nobody. So maybe he just made it up and told that as a folklore tale from us. But his point was, when that was spoken, to say that word on TV was like, <gasps> I mean, it was so inappropriate to say the F word. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love for us to bring the F word back in place of the current one. Now, using God's name in vain, at 8 o'clock on a, on, a, on a regular broadcast station, is perfectly okay. Sexual gratuity, <laughs> does it not demonstrate to you that we've come a long, long way? And here's what's being said now. We have, we have finally just not been so prude. We've finally just gotten with the times. We've just, we've just wised up. We've just matured. Folks, listen, if this is maturity... We're in a lot of trouble. But let's go back to the text. Y'all with me still? But he says that we've suppressed the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them. Let me, let me, let me, let me take that word evident and explode a little bit. It is blatantly obvious in front of them. Right? So what can be known about God? So first off, we can know about God. God is not this mystery somewhere, but he has revealed himself to us in what's known here or, or what we call general revelation. In other words, all mankind everywhere on the planet, the Bible says, are without excuse. Nobody can say, I just didn't know there was a God. They cannot justly and rightly say, I just didn't know, because the Bible says we're without excuse because what can be known about God is obvious and evident among them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. Now, I told you last week that Genesis 1 through 11 is the foundation for all of our theology. Everything we know about God starts in Genesis 1 through 11. And if you'll take a good note, in the last 60, 70 years, Genesis 1 through 11 has been systematically debunked. Now, it hasn't really been debunked, but, but, but there's been explanation of why these things can't be true. Why is it that God didn't create the heavens and the earth, but the heavens and the earth came out of nothing, right? Why is it that God made them male and female. He didn't make them male and female. He made a male, female, rat, uh, uh, cat, whatever, right? I mean, so, so all of these basic things, and God married Adam and Eve. No, you can just marry whoever you love, right? So you have all of these things that in Scripture are clearly laid out for us, and yet culture is one by one trying to debunk them. But here's the thing. When you walk into a room, you can say, 
this is this is sounds far-fetched, but it's really not. You can say, I am a cat. And people will, yes, meow, 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 meow. They'll sing to you, they'll They'll, they'll ignore, yes, you're a cat, but in their heart of hearts, they're going, you're no more a cat than I'm a horse. Because I'm looking at you. Even though you drew whiskers, I know what a human being is. You're not, you're a cat. But inside, they're going, I'll just play along. See, they know intrinsically what's going on. They just don't want to offend. So, so you, let me illustrate it this way. Do you see this picture? One of my favorite pictures. If you're a young adult and you, you used to come to my house, you know this picture, right? This is the difecta. In other words, it's the most perfect spot on earth. Because it's got the two most perfect meals on the planet. In and out, triple, triple, animal style, and Krispy Kreme. Now you look at this. Now this was an actual place. Those of you who used to live in San Francisco probably recognize this place because it's down by Fisherman's Wharf. And here's the thing. Can anybody in this room with any integrity at all say this was a blank canvas yesterday? When I woke up this morning, it was there. Can anybody say that? No? I mean, but why not? Because your brain tells you this not only is a painting that has colors and that has lines and stuff, but it's, it's specific. It says Krispy Kreme. It says San Francisco. It says in and out By the way, a friend of mine painted this for me because I took a picture of this and I said the difecta. And she said, you know, I'm going to make a picture. And so it hangs on my wall. But I know who painted this, but even if, I, even if it just showed up on my porch, there's no possible chance I would say, you know, that must have come from nowhere. The Bible tells us that men are without excuse because what we see is evidence, it's general revelation that there is a God. When in, in the morning when you rise and you go outside and you see the sun coming up, if you have any intellectual integrity at all, you have to say, that's amazing. If you stand at the beach and you look out across the sea and you notice that the blue just melds into the blue and it just seems to go forever and ever and ever, you have to say, man, that had to have come from someone who knew what they were doing. When you sit and you look at a little baby, and, and as you're looking at him, you're going, this thing just appeared out of nowhere. No. I was using Judah as the example over here. You and I would look at baby Judah and say, this, this definitely had a creator. There definitely is a mom and a dad. Right? Nobody would think that, and yet... How do we get from knowing what's blatantly obvious in front of us to saying, well, all the world that exists just came out of nowhere. It was a grand explosion. Molecules collided together. Boom! Order out of disorder and chaos. Number one, physics don't work that way. But number two, common sense tells you 
somebody must have built this because his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. No human on the planet has the right to say or can say with any integrity at all, there is no God. In fact, let's take it one step further. To say there is no God would mean that you'd have to be in every place in the universe at the same time to declare, I've checked everywhere, there is no God, which, by the way, would absolutely make you God. So your statement would still be false. So they're without excuse, but then it takes it one step further. For though they knew God, so in other words, they knew what they were seeing. They, there must be a God, but I don't want to believe in a God, because if there is a God, then I must be subject to him. Therefore, I will pretend that a God doesn't exist, and I will simply make a God of my own making. It says, for they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. So this is what's happened. Our thoughts became worthless and our hearts have become darkened. Because the Bible tells in John chapter 3 again that men don't like the light, they like the darkness. And so when the light happens, they put aside the light and they gravitate to the darkness. Because in the darkness I can do whatever I want. In the darkness there's no one to judge me. In the darkness, there's no one to condemn me. In the darkness, there's no accountability for what I want to do. And so because of that, they claimed to be wise, and yet they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. In other words... God made us in his image. We rejected that because he was shining light on the things that we wanted to do, but he said don't do. And therefore, we remove God from our life. We suppress the truth and exchange the glory of an immortal God for a God that we've made in our own image. So God made us in his image, and we said, I reject that. I want to make a God in my image. And have you ever noticed that we do that all the time with our own theology. Chapter 2 of Romans actually tells us this. We can stand all day long and say, oh, you have rejected God, rejected God, and yet we look at our own hearts and say, wait a minute, haven't we done the very same thing? Don't we form our theology based on what we want to believe rather than what the Scripture actually says? We're all guilty of it. Now, I say that knowing that we still we still are flesh and bone, so we still have to go back and test and challenge. Do I believe something because it's tradition? Do I believe something because I want to do something or go a certain way? Or do I believe something because I've examined the Scriptures and the Scriptures have said, this is who God is? Like, I know a lot of believers who just don't believe there's a hell. They're like, you know what? There's no way a loving God would ever send anybody to hell. And to my, my, my response would be, okay, well, why did Jesus talk about hell more than he talked about heaven? Or at least as much. All over you see Jesus speaking of eternal punishment. All over the place. So is Jesus a liar? Or do I have to readjust my thought of what I want to believe to match what God said rather than what I want to believe? So let's keep going. 
So they've exchanged God. They've made their own images. Here's what happens after we make our own idols. Now you're like, well, we haven't made idols. Oh, yeah, we have. Our idols are typically green, and they're flat, and they have numbers on it, right? That's typically our idols. We, we idolize uh, money. That's called greed. In fact, if you go into Scripture, it says the love of money is the root of all evil, right? So, I mean, that, that, that's there, right? We, we've made idolatry out of independence. We've made idolatry out of about, sometimes out of nationalistic pride. We've made idolatry out of our families. We've made, I mean, we, we make, I, our hearts are idol factories, says the late Tim Keller. And I'm not exempt from that, by the way. I'm one, I'm with you. Every day I wake up and it's like, dang, there's another idol. What am I doing? It's because I want God to fit into my mind. I want him to be small like me, and that's just crazy. Why would I change an immortal God who is omnipotent and all-knowing and all-loving? Why do I want a God that is smaller? No, I want a God that is bigger because when all things start to go crazy, I want to be able to run to someone who is immovable and unchangeable and perfect in all of his ways. Amen? That's the God I want. But let's keep going. It says, therefore, here's the next step. I make my own idol because I've suppressed the truth and I've moved into the dark. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity. There's something about a culture. When they suppress the truth enough, when they, dark, when they, when they get into the, enough darkness that it always moves to sexual impurity. And in our own culture, that is revealing itself, I think, most blatantly through the whole LGBTQ trans movement. I mean, I just want you to, for a moment, think about this. The moment we move into complete sexual perversion, we have opened up the floodgates for everything else. There is nothing we can say no to the moment we move outside of the very clear boundaries in Scripture when it comes to sexual morality. There's nothing that, I mean, how can we say no to anything after we've said yes to this? So the very natural has moved into the unnatural, and now that we live in the unnatural, everything else is just fair game. And so what we're seeing today in our culture is that the floodgates have opened. That's why we never saw this in the 50s and we never saw it in the 80s and we really didn't see it in the 90s. But if you'll notice, it's kind of gotten to a point where it just, this is a terrible illustration. You're going to kill me for this, but it's the best way I can tell you this. Now you're like, do I want to know? You know when you get a, a zit on your forehead and it, it, it's irritating and so you're like, Ah, and so you stand in front of the mirror and you're constantly going like that, right? And, and it's just really, really deep, right? And then eventually it gets to that point where it's just ready to burn, and, and, right? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's what's happened in our culture. And once that happens, there is no turning back. In fact, I would argue from a historical perspective that once a culture gets to this point, that culture dies. Go back and look at the Romans. Go back and look at the Babylonians. Go back and look at the Medes and Persians. Go back and look at every other culture that's gone before us. Once a culture passes the line, 
The culture itself is irredeemable. Now, here's the thing. I can't tell you that we've crossed that line. I don't know. I, I just don't know. But I can tell you that from what I see, my own opinion, we're awfully close to that line. Awfully, awfully close. So here. Now listen. I said culture unredeemable. That doesn't mean that God's not still at work. So this is why you got to keep through the whole thing here, right? Because the, the picture I'm painting isn't a beautiful picture. It's an ugly picture. But you got to hold on to the end because we're going to go back to another verse here in just a second. So therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded amongst themselves. The very most basic part, our bodies, we were made in the image of God. So if we degrade our own bodies, we are degrading the temple of God, right? The Bible says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit if we're born again. And so we're degrading the very thing that God designed to live in through his spirit. Do you see how, how perverse that really is? He says, we, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. Does that sound familiar? For this reason... God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. In other words, God keeps removing himself farther and farther and farther. Psalm 1 says this, The fool says in his heart, No more God. And so God says, As you wish. And Princess Bride just popped into my head, so... So maybe God said, as you wish. That's what he said. You want no God? Okay. I think that's why empires die. They push God to the edge so far that God says, all that I was doing to protect you, I will remove. And you can... You can you can have the results of ruling yourselves. Because ultimately that's what we're saying, isn't it? I don't want God to rule me. I want to rule me. I don't want to submit to God's rule, his authority, his power. So I'll, I'll use every excuse in the book to try to remove him from the equation. And the moment God is removed from the equation, all hell is unleashed. So what do we do? And by the way, the next part of the passage, you can read it. It just, it just gets even deeper and deeper. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their woman exchanged uh, natural relations. They're mended also for lust from one another. And then from there, it goes on to unrighteousness, evil greed. Every word in there is pretty much at the bottom of the barrel, right? But here's what we need to understand. Go back to verse 16. For believers, we can curse the darkness, which will do nothing. Or we can remember that the power of the gospel is still the same. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, 
just as it is written, the just or the righteous will live by faith. Here's what the Bible is telling us. Even though the world may be going to hell in a handbasket, and you may not think that's the case, but you have to at least acknowledge that it's kind of going that direction, right? Even though the chaos and the sin and the, the, the unrighteousness and the, the, the flagrant disrespect for God and, and acknowledgement that he even exists, even though all of those things are the case, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is still the power of God for salvation. In other words, in a broken, confused culture, God is still rescuing people who will call upon his name. And he's using you and me, he's using our church to be a lifeboat in a sea of bodies who are just floating, waiting to drown. I imagine in my mind the picture of the Titanic. What if there would have been a lifeboat that was empty? And what if somebody was going from person to person saying, get in, there's room. Could you imagine the people in the water say, no, no, I refuse to get in the lifeboat. My grandfather used to have a lifeboat. And he, 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 didn't, he didn't sing well, and so I just decided I'd never get in another lifeboat as long as I shall live. You're going, that's insane, right? But you still would go around person to person looking for people, begging them, get in the lifeboat, get in the lifeboat. And every now and then you'd find somebody who says, yes, I will trust the lifeboat. Even though I don't understand how it was built, even though I, don't, I haven't inspected the numbers on it, I don't know if it's even registered with the state of Florida, I will get in your lifeboat. Because if I don't get in your lifeboat, I'm going to die. That's someone who understands the wrath of God and who understands the grace of God in the same time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him will not perish. The last part of chapter 1 says they deserve to die. We deserve to die, and yet they will not perish but have everlasting life. Church, here's our marching orders, I think, from Scripture. We are not ashamed of the gospel, ever. We will never suppress the truth. We will always say, I know it doesn't play well to the audience, but this is what God says. We will never say it in hopes of offending. We will always say it knowing it will offend, but we'll also say it knowing that truth is always truth. And as we proclaim the truth, we will also offer a life raft to say, if you will grab my hand, I will help you get in this boat, and you'll be saved. By the way, that's kind of why the church exists. That's who we are. That's why God made us. So you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment. I just want to invite you to, to first off, think of your picture of God. If you've got a, an imbalanced picture of who he is, I want to invite you to ask God to help you straighten that out so that you can see him as a complete picture, not just a one-sided picture. Two, if you're here today and you have not been believing the truth. I want to invite you to believe Him. Trust Him. Three, if you've never trusted Christ Jesus, I want to invite you to trust Him. 
you're watching by TV or by Facebook, there's a God who loves you beyond more than you could possibly know or imagine. And he extends his arms out to you and he asks you, if you'll come, I'll save you. Father, I pray for your grace upon us today. I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray that you would take this passage of Scripture and, and let it awaken inside of our hearts just how marvelous you really are. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Help us to never, um, never be afraid to stand on your word. We ask this in Jesus' name.